I don't know how to say this, Luke, but I've been having... I, I've not been enjoying looking at Greg Proops's Twitter as much as I used to. Oh, say it ain't so. What yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just because, like, times are particularly dark right now. <laughs> I mean, Greg Greg Proops, I just, I just want you to know, stands with Israel. So his feed right now is a really great mix of, like, you know, what his tweets normally are, which are, like, retweeting the official John F. Kennedy Twitter account, where it's just, like, a picture of Kennedy on a boat. Retweeting just everything Kamala Harris tweets and being like, thank you. Or, like, yeah, like, Dr. Jill Biden decorating the White House and then being <laughs> like, isn't it great to have nice people at the White oh, House? Oh, yeah, that was that was one of those kind of, like, little micro-discourse that uh, some Twitter libs tried to get going again recently, like, the, the outrage over Melania Trump's gaudy White House decorations, which, you know, Jill Biden has now fortunately corrected. Incidentally, imagine giving a shit about like, I mean, in how these the White times, House is decorated during, it, at Christmas. At, at, at any time. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? And this is this is true Trump derangement syndrome. Oh, man. Um, man yeah. But now, in particular, it's just so monstrous. So you, you'll see that on his feed. And then you'll see other tweets that are like, um, just so you know, Israel has taken every state it's ever been offered and palestinians have turned down every state they've been offered thread and then you know quote tweeting it with like thank you and i don't know you're saying this is ruining greg proops for you i think like rob reiner well, I, I was gonna say yeah. in times like these see rob reiner he, who i love yeah, now rob, he's rob reiner is a, is a rock in these difficult times because he's also a twitter lib but he's like never left 2017 he's the spirit of 2017 unite blue resistance brain liberalism like if you're an archaeologist and you found it frozen in a glacier like he's just tweeting all the time about how you know we're, we're on the precipice of authoritarianism and we have to you know, everyone has to go vote for Joe Biden. There are always parallel news cycles happening at any given time. So you, to people like us, we're looking at our feeds and we're seeing, oh, more horrible devastation, another 700 dead, you know, etc. Then you go over to Rob Reiner's feed and you'll just see decontextualized. <laughs> He's tweeting about January 6th. Yeah, you'll see <laughs> yeah, without yeah. any context, like <laughs> Trump is fucked. And <laughs> yeah. you'll see that. It's like, oh, yeah. he, there must there must be a trial going on. He, yeah, right. He's watching one of the like uh 17 different Donald Trump court cases going on right now. Man, you know, I was trying to follow those for a while. And, you know, it's like like with anything on YouTube, you watch one video on MSNBC that's about like the Donald Trump court cases. And then all of your suggestions are just that. But it is insane. You start watching these things and it's like there's such a rich lore at this point of like Donald Trump's legal troubles. You can't just jump in in the middle. You watch one, you're like, I don't know who any of these characters are. The people that I don't follow even... it, they are buffs Man, for this. They, they know love all of it and well and this is what i realized like if i i watched you know i spent a couple weeks where i was like periodically checking in on these things you know when he was getting indicted in georgia and that kind of thing and it's interesting what starts to happen i think this doesn't just apply to watching you know trump stuff on cable news this is kind of cable news in general it starts to kind of skew your sense of what has weight and what has significance because the thing is you know cable news just broadcasts all the time now and like 99 percent of it is like it's so boring it's like information they've kind of already reported with some new little thing added, some new detail, or there's some development that's probably inconsequential. So like an example of, of a kind of story you, you'll you know, often see in these MSNBC clips that get like millions of views on YouTube every week. It'll just be like, oh, Trump's latest request to have a case thrown out has been has been denied. A circuit court, a district court has said, no, sir, Mr. President, you are not above the law. And that's probably what Rob Reiner was reacting to. Yeah, when... and I feel like one kind of loses the forest in the trees 
worries with uh, with stuff like this. Yeah, well, and that's because what... he, he'll be he'll be fine. You know, <laughs> right, right. That's what's happened with so many of these like cable news driven stories over the past few years. That's what the whole Mueller investigation was like. There were not only cable news clips, there were podcasts that were doing like emergency pods because of some like minor new detail uh, about M- M- Mueller. She wrote. Yeah, right, right, right. Mueller. She wrote. Yeah, they, they, folks. Those are the guys, right? That famously got like one of those COVID <laughs> grants for small business. I would have liked a piece of the action there, I got to say. But no, these, you know, if you watch this stuff all day, like it rewires your brain and you start to see great significance in things that like everything becomes a smoking gun. Everything is a revelatory scoop. And I suppose, you know, there are scoops that get reported on major networks, but it's, you know, it's pretty rare in the grand scheme of things. And most of what you see is decidedly not that. And I think the networks all know this, which is why the tenor of a lot of what they broadcast, it's all dialed up to 11 all the time. There's always so much pomp and circumstance around the most boring things. Like pretty much the only time I've watched cable news this fall has been uh, anytime there's a, a Republican presidential debate. I also caught a uh, 15 minutes of the, uh, you know, gruesome guest. Gavin uh, Meatball Ron uh, oh, yeah, showdown yeah. recently. How, how was that? I mean, I'm a sicko for these things. I just want to say uh, that Greg Proops thought Gavin won. <laughs> he yeah. thought Gavin won. Okay, yeah. it's good to know. <laughs> I only watched 15 minutes, so I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. I'll, I'll trust uh, Mr. Proops's judgment <laughs> on on that one. His august political sense. I said that I don't like to check Greg Proops's page, but I've been checking it more than I ever have. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm a sicko for these uh, debates, and I couldn't watch more than 15 minutes of Ron and. Gavin it was it's I mean it's awful it's so stupid totally pointless but you know like uh, all the other debates like the all the Republican presidential debates I've watched this fall you know these are the definition okay of things with like not even low stakes like there's no stakes to these at all I mean I guess the stakes are is Chris Christie who's still polling at one percent and claims he has a path to victory a few months before Iowa you know is he gonna get his speaking gig on uh, CNN or MSNBC after like that's what the stakes are the stakes are nothing none of these people are going to be the Republican nominee unless Donald Trump slips on a banana peel or something. And yet you watch the way the networks report them. And there's so much, you know, all the talking heads beforehand, they've got, you know, former McCain advisor, former Bush advisor, all on there. And they're saying stuff like, uh, you know, well, the economy, of course, is very important to the voters at the moment. And, you know, whoever wins the argument on the economy is going to, you know, they're going to have a good night. And, you know, they're trying to get little micro cycles going about, oh, this could be a big night for Nikki Haley. Uh, Oh, are we finally going to get to see Tim Scott's girlfriend? Actually, to my surprise, we did in the end, like a day before he dropped out. But anyway, it's all to say, uh, yeah, you watch cable news for too long and it starts to skew your sense of proportion when it comes to everything moral ethical significance uh yeah political significance just the actual news value of news you lose any sense of that and that's partly about over immersion in cable news and it's also just about the way cable news is structured and the way everything is dialed up to 11 at all times it's quite jarring to jump into if you don't watch it regularly i'm a little sheepish beginning this discussion by talking about like fucking greg proops and rob Reiner, because again, as as we say every week when we talk about bozos like this, like who cares? You know, they're bozos, but we're just seeing so much awfulness and you don't know, quite know what to do with that energy a lot of the time. I mean, you can go to a protest, uh, you can you can write your representative and then you can go on to uh, Greg Proops's feed and you can <laughs> you can hate read it. 
By the way, have you enjoyed seeing Hillary Clinton out and about this last couple of weeks? They've recruited her into the propaganda efforts. And, you know, people always used to say that she had an authenticity problem, which, you know, was true when she was like <laughs> dabbing or, uh, or when she was she, when she's chilling in Cedar Rapids, Pokemon go to the polls. But man, when she is rallying for war, the glint in her no eyes, authenticity problem there. Oh, man. No, she loves it. Well, you may be interested to know that I'm currently taking her master class on resilience. You know, they say there are no second acts in American life, but I see her out rallying support for the hostages and God, inspirational. Well, let me tell you, Will, uh, I got a couple of articles I'd like to plug. But uh, speaking of resilience, you know, coming back from different political defeats, can I complain to you about something that annoyed me recently? Uh, That would be unprecedented for this show, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so uh, I had a couple of pieces in the Toronto Star recently, uh, an essay I wrote on Werner Herzog and his new memoir, Every Man for Himself and God Against all. Uh, you can find that at the Toronto Star. Uh, it's called A Wanderer in the Fog. I also did an interview with Tantu Cardinal, who, among other things, is in uh, the new Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. Hollywood Savage over here. <laughs> Both the articles were in print, but I obviously wanted to share them on social media and such. And so, uh, you know, I searched my name on the Toronto Star website and, you know, yeah, they came up and then I scrolled down a little bit to yeah, see... Yeah, do, do you fuckers, when you search your name, <laughs> does it show up on the Toronto Star website? I bet it doesn't. Well, let me tell you, one of the things that turned up is this story from uh, June 10th, 2014. Incumbent liberal Hoskins taking nothing for granted. Uh, So this is a story from the 2014 Ontario election. Hoskins mentioned in the headline there is Mr. Eric Hoskins, my one-time political opponent. It feels a little silly to say that. Oh, that's right. If if folks don't know, this is part of the Luke Savage lore that he actually (laughs) ran for provincial parliament in the year 2014 when he was uh, 25, I believe. Is that correct? Well, I think I was younger than that, but you can read about it right here in the Toronto Star, although I have to say uh, they did get a few facts wrong. Uh, I am mentioned in the final graph of the piece. I was, and you know, accurately, I will say a footnote to this story. Uh, I was not any threat to Mr. Eric Hoskins, who was, you know, a, a liberal cabinet minister. Savage is said to have good self-esteem, would never <laughs> resort to having a podcast where he broadcasts his opinions to thousands of strangers. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't see this at the time, but uh, because I, you know, I was too busy, uh, too busy knocking on doors and getting my 5,000 votes or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, the final paragraph reads, the NDP candidate is Luke Savage, 23, a constituency assistant for NDP MPP Mike Sullivan. Uh, then it mentions some stuff about the Green Party and the Libertarian Party and the Freedom Party, etc. 23, so, folks. And when you're 23, no matter, even if you're running for a major political party, they put you in the, in the paragraph <laughs> with the Animal Alliance Party and the, you know, those other ones I just named. Uh, although, I mean, I left the Freedom Party in the greens in the dust, let me tell you. <laughs> so a few factual inaccuracies in this paragraph. I was not, in fact, a constituency assistant at the time. That was two years earlier. Uh, Mike Sullivan, who it's mentioned here, uh, was not an MPP. He was an MP. So wrong level of government. And I worked for him several years earlier. Wow, the lying liberal media. <laughs> That's right. Quipped savage. Why buy a book when you can join a library? <laughs> So then there's another story, which I guess is from election night. Spoiling the ending here, folks. Liberal Eric Hoskins wins St. Paul's. Um, and then <laughs> the last paragraph of this one is re- begins. The New Democrats ran an almost non-existent campaign with constituency <laughs> assistant Luke Savage putting his name on the ballot. <laughs> 
I love I love the framing there yeah. Yeah, of, yeah. of putting his name on the ballot yeah. as if it was like anybody could have done it and uh, you you were just the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this did irritate me a little bit because it's like I did have a few dozen volunteers or something. There were signs with my name and my face all over the riding. You know, there were people from the labor movement and stuff who came and knocked on doors with me. It's pretty annoying. Wow, the lying Toronto star. <laughs> I'm with Doug Ford now. What is with this political vendetta? Yeah, I'm sure if the Toronto Star had been more fair and balanced there, I would have won that one in a walk. I do have uh, one other plug, albeit with maybe a bit of a narrower niche of interest in our audience. Uh, If you happen to live in Istanbul and our analytics tell us we are a presence in the Turkish podcast charts, but uh, you can read an interview with me in the uh, Bergen newspaper. I'm sure I'm uh, mutilating the pronunciation there, but uh, I have an interview on uh, current events in the world and how they may affect uh, the upcoming U.S. election. So uh, if you've ever wanted to read me in Turkish, now's your chance. Luke, did you see me in the Times of London last week? Wasn't that pretty exciting? <laughs> wait, you were in the uh, the British uh, the British establishment newspaper of record? Oh, wait, I did see that. This was your big interview about the Prince Andrew Innocence Project? They didn't ask me for my political beliefs, although I am open to write an op-ed on that subject. No, I got interviewed for an article about Bob Dylan, because the guy who wrote the article stumbled on a Medium.com post that I wrote, like, Man. over a year ago. So this can, ha- this can happen to anyone. Uh, I wrote an ar- a, a Medium medium.com post about all the Bob Dylan concerts I had seen. And uh, oh, I read that. That was good. Uh, so the article is called Dylan's a change into a crowd pleaser at 82. And uh, listen to this. W- Will Sloan, <laughs> a writer based in Toronto who first saw a Dylan concert as a teenager with his parents in 2008. I was 19. So definitely on the edge of being a teenager. But part of the singer's appeal is that he is not a crowd pleaser. Quote, I think you'll find that when talking to Bob Dylan fans, they sound like deranged cult members, unquote, he said. Uh, continues to quote me. They'll say, you know, he didn't sing any of his classic songs. The ones he sang, you couldn't recognize them. And he didn't look at the audience and you couldn't understand anything. It was great. Uh, so so there I am. And again, the British establishment press. Uh, I can be bought in this case for zero dollars. Well, you know, I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about ourselves on this episode so far and, you know, about our exploits. And, you know, we need to be mindful here because there's a little movie we watched called Live from Baghdad that we watched for this week's episode. It can be a problem when the media itself becomes part of the story. But maybe, just maybe, it's actually good. Once again, the Iraqi people face tragedy. In 1991, on the brink of war. We're a 24-hour news network looking for a 24-hour story, and one just fell from the sky. All the networks ran for cover. Who do you want? They want Ingrid Formanek. What'd I do without you? Die alone, Dad. But only one crew had the courage. You know who this is? The CNN. 24 hours a day. Is it news or is it music? John Holmes, CNN. To get the story. Why would President Saddam Hussein do CNN? Because he watches them. What is this movie? I'm so excited to talk about it. Okay, this movie, which is... <laughs> it's got Michael Keaton in it, folks. It's another Michael Keaton movie. Man, <laughs> he is racking up a Michael and us filmography. It, he, he's the new Michael of this podcast. Yes, yes. Um, the two Michaels. Uh, this movie, I knew that this was going to be a good one. When oh. I stumbled on this one, I knew this was going to be good, but I didn't know how good it was going to be. This is the most excited I've been for a bad movie on this podcast in a while. It's interminable. <laughs> it's 180 minutes long feels longer than the decalogue yeah like the tv series mash it was actually longer than the war on which it was based 
But yeah, this movie is about the little engine that could, CNN, an underdog, an upstart in the TV news sphere that saw an opportunity and leapt for it. Most of the big networks, the dinosaurs, you know, the six o'clock news broadcasts. Sir, the news goes 24 hours a day, especially when America is about to go to war. Uh, This is a movie about CNN embedding itself in the first Gulf War in 1991 and coming of age. And uh, this movie was broadcast on HBO on December 7th. So it's the 21st anniversary. And we definitely knew that, by the way, when we planned to do this this episode. December 7th, 2002. Okay. (laughs) You all know what happened in March of 2003. Okay. There is a drumbeat to war. Yeah, there's there's a drumbeat to war. And let me tell you, the libs that were behind this movie thought it was very important that people understand, look, folks, America's about to be at war with Iraq again. And, you know, you're hearing a lot of skeptics in the leftist media who are really, you know, the useful idiots for Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. They want to tell you that you can't trust CNN when it talks about weapons of mass destruction. Well, who can forget uh, how courageous the scrappy suits at a little conglomerate you've never heard of called the Time Warner Company... How courageous they were in their defense of journalism in 1991. And that is the story told by this movie, which I believe is based on a book by the guy that Michael Keaton plays. As we were watching it, I mean, we knew it came out in the year 2002 and we were saying there's going to be a big difference about whether this was January or December. (laughs) If it was January 2002, well, maybe there's some plausible deniability. (laughs) Maybe this just happened to be an interesting story that happened to be in development. But but no. It was released December 7th. To set the table, I'd like to read an article published on January 20th, 1991 in Variety, headlined, CNN Rains in Desert Storm. Quote, As Operation Desert Storm erupted last week, there was only one unequivocal victor in the first days of war, the cable news network. The startling audio reports transmitted by anchor Bernard Shaw and correspondents John Holliman and Peter Arnett as the first bombs fell on Baghdad seized the world's attention. CNN suddenly was everywhere on the television dial. After another year of declining audience share, the broadcast nets were looking to prove their indispensability in an international crisis. Instead, they found themselves upstaged by a 10-year-old cable news service, further shifting the balance of power in cable's direction. On the night of the initial bombardment of Baghdad, as television viewing reached record high levels, CNN achieved the largest rating ever won by a cable network in primetime. Inside its U.S. ratings universe of 56.7 million households, CNN scored 19.1 slash 25.3. I don't know what that means. It's ratings numbers, I guess, representing 10,834,000 homes. The figure does not include blah, 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 blah. So it was broadcast on a lot of affiliates and things like that uh, as well. On an average night, Variety reported CNN garners less than one rating point in primetime. So I read this both to provide a little bit of a context for the story this movie relates, but also because I think it's quite significant that at the time of the Gulf War itself, right, CNN was a big part of the story. That piece by Variety is almost, you know, the subtext of that is like, okay, folks, there's a there's a war on. Who's winning? Well, it's 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 the cable news network. It's CNN. And I cannot stress enough that the Gulf War is completely incidental. This movie, if you listen to our episode from a few months back on the movie Air, where the stakes are are Matt Damon and and uh, Ben Affleck who work at this here, you know, this scrappy little corporate underdog called Nike, are they going to get, you know, the Michael Jordan shoe? Those are the stakes of that movie. And this movie is the same thing, except it's about the Gulf War. And the stakes are, is CNN going to leapfrog NBC and CBS? 
Those are the stakes of this movie. And for a movie that is ridden through with all this kind of insipid, like liberal nuance mongering about journalistic ethics and that kind of thing, the story that it tells is itself basically propaganda. And not just because it was broadcast uh, on TV, I should add. This was not in theaters uh, in December of uh, 2002. Well, the protagonist is Robert Wiener, a veteran CNN producer played by Michael Keaton, going full Keaton in his performance, (laughs) doing the eyebrow shit, you know, all the things that he does. Uh, The opening scene where he's wandering around the CNN office, making his pitch, lay out all the stakes. You might say, how would you you characterize him? He's a bit of a rogue, perhaps, in the news business. Well, it's like, yeah, I mean, some, there are some news guys who like wear their suits and stuff, but Robert Wiener, as played by Michael Keaton, like sometimes he's got a ball cap, you know. He rolls up his damn sleeves is what he does. Sometimes when he's in the bathroom, he sits on the sink when he's talking to someone, you know? Little things like that. This is what Noam Chomsky used to talk about when he talked about manufacturing consent. So he goes to Iraq and he's joined by, you know, a whole team of journalists. Helena Bonham Carter is his kind of partner. Yeah, she's a producer on whatever show he's working. Lily Taylor is there as like a sound person. There's a camera person. We don't need to go over all these people. What's important is the minute that we get to Baghdad, like fascism lives on on the earth. Can I tell you, there are armed security people at the airport in Baghdad. There are... There are surveillance cameras everywhere. They're going going through the bags? (laughs) Surveillance cameras everywhere in Baghdad. Yeah, and and I love this scene as well because it's it's one of the many examples of, like, this is one of the most Tom Friedman brain movies we've ever watched because the thing it repeatedly does to kind of contrast, you know, the the, the civilized, secular, and capitalist West with, you know, the, the barbaric peoples of the Orient is it constantly emphasizes that they don't have, you know, certain consumer products and that they're apparently not allowed to listen to Duran Duran, which you frequently are playing at the U.S. ambassador's compound in Baghdad during many scenes there. So when they're at the airport in this opening bit, and yeah, like the Iraqi airport people are like looking through their bags and stuff. The Iraqi security man will like pick up a battery and he'll be like, what's this? Or then he has like a Walkman and, he, and he's like, Walkman? You know, like we know have this. Like music comes out of this appliance. What sorcery is this? Yeah, this movie is... <laughs> We do not believe in music here in the Middle East. I mean, music is the sound of liberation. It feels almost trite to say that this movie's racist, but it's unbelievably racist. Well, there's a a scene of like incredible bald faced racism early on when, you know, the CNN team is driving from the airport (laughs) to their hotel and they're just seeing these like open air markets and the movie is laying on the Middle Eastern music like, "Ah," you know, the ominous Middle Eastern sounding music. Yeah, it's like this Orientalist like snake charmer bullshit they're and they're doing. looking they're looking at the open air street like one of them i think the lily taylor character just makes like a racist comment about it and you're so, someone says something like oh this shit's straight out of alibaba right right and, and and the thing is the point of view of of the movie is their point of view so at the time when we heard that line it was kind of early in the movie and i thought oh you know this is probably this is a lib film so that's probably gonna be walked back in some way and like it isn't really it is kind of a movie about these courageous american journalists who you know are in this barbaric country that's a about to be bombed. But to the point you just made, one of the flaws of this movie well, the, is... Perhaps the only one? <laughs> <laughs> one of the flaws is that, you know, these CNN guys are depicted as these Davids against the Goliath of... Of NBC and CBS. Well, well, that, but also the Iraq security state. It's like there are cameras everywhere. There are military people everywhere. Uh, everything is bugged. Saddam is always watching you. And yet also, like, it's this backwards, primitive society where it's... Nothing what, works. What is, what is television? What is this equipment? 
equipment you need for broadcast live. That's right. They go to an Iraqi TV station to broadcast something or to transmit something back home. And the first thing that the cameraman says when they walk in there is like he's looking at all the, the equipment they have and he's like, oh, I haven't seen stuff like this since I last visited my grandfather's house or whatever. I cannot stress enough, again, how Tom Friedman brain this movie is. I think of uh, something I believe Christopher Hitchens said in 2003 or 2004, you know, about how, you know, the U.S. was going to arrive in Baghdad. They're going to be greeted as liberators, etc. And then there was some turn of phrase he had, perhaps people remember it, where one of the things he said, I'm pretty sure this was Hitchens and not the great Mr. Friedman himself, who said something about how, you know, there was going to be influx of perhaps democracy and, and laptop computers. Like that was the specific thing that was invoked. And I cannot stress enough how this movie understands freedom basically through the lens of, you know, particular kinds of cultural consumption and consumer products. Like those things are the locus of freedom as this movie understands it. You know, well, you're right to talk about, you know, the journalists are coming up against, you know, the uh, the terrifying uh, Iraqi national security apparatus. But the movie also, and, you know, this really is a lib movie because it also tries to portray the journalists who are who are there, you know, before the war has started as people who are worried about getting used by both sides. Uh, they do a story, uh, by the way, it's it seems the only story they file in like six months that they spend in the Middle East uh, about some footage of Saddam Hussein with some young British boy or something I I could I could not be bothered to look into this who was allegedly being held hostage or something like that and there's a scene where someone from NBC or something's telling Michael Keaton well you know Saddam wanted you to broadcast that you know but then also sort of adds the caveat that uh, well but I think you know it sort of blew up in his face later in the film one of the justifications for staying in Baghdad and reporting is if we do a live feed the White House can't control the story uh, you know we can we can report it live which is really funny because later in that variety story that I was reading from, there's a detail which is also included in this movie and is supposed to be a moment where you watching at home are like pumping your fist in celebration, where they play the footage of, of Dick Cheney saying <laughs> this is mentioned in the Variety story, again, is a good thing. This is like, pra- this is praise from Caesar. The network received a major boost from, uh, you know, the, its endorsement by Dick Cheney who said, oh, the best reporting I've seen from Iraq has been from uh, CNN. So yeah, the CNN journalists here, they're, these reporters, they're very anxious about being used as propagandists by the state. They're also very happy to receive plaudits from Dick Cheney. Now, there are a whole bunch of little episodes, uh, you know, like the one at the airport I mentioned. The film opens, by the way, we should not forget about the first scene, because uh, the film opens with a bunch of Kuwaitis uh, watching. What's the film, Will? I believe it is Tremors with Kevin Bacon. Oh, okay. And this is, okay. this is one of the most, <laughs> like, ideology-packed scenes of the movie. All, all the Kuwaitis are drinking Pepsi, and they're watching this American movie, and then, wait, something wrong the ground is shuddering what could this be and that's and that's to show you first of all these kuwaitis are just like us they consume our they media drink pepsi you know <laughs> And then they go outside and there's, yep, there's uh, Saddam Hussein's tanks are rolling down the street. Now in Iraq, of course, you don't, you don't see Kevin Bacon in Iraq. You don't see Pepsi there where you see our open air markets and <laughs> odd alcoholic beverages that we don't have in America. However, there are some, some kind souls in Iraq, believe it or not. There is David Suchet as Naji Al-Haditha, the Minister of Information. And I love it when uh, Michael Keaton goes to the Ministry of Information. Uh, that's, that's where they keep 
all the information because uh, the people getting too much might lead to liberation. And we can't have that. But Keaton goes to the Ministry of Information. It's this like dark hallway with a guy at the desk. And like, again, the ominous Middle Eastern music is playing full blast. Like, like he's really he's getting his hands dirty as a journalist. Like sometimes you got to you got to make a deal with the devil if you want to be a journalist. So he goes there and Naji Al-Haditha is uh, an educated man, a serious man, a smart man. He's got a huge portrait of Saddam Hussein behind his desk. And he thinks, what do we have to gain from this American? And a lot of the film, really the emotional heart of the film is in the dance between the Keaton character and the Minister of Information as they, he negotiates, you know, can we get an interview with Saddam Hussein on CNN, for example? How much is Iraq willing to cooperate with us? And in fact, can we be a sort of go-between? Can we be a broker, maybe even for peace, between Iraq <laughs> and the United States? There's a really wonderful sort of lib-brained moment about two-thirds of the way in when, you know, the, the drumbeat to war has become inexorable. And uh, Keaton and Helena Bonham Carter are observing, like, the two sides are talking through us. Yeah, but but nobody's listening. <laughs> You know, and yeah, then Keaton himself, and this is how you know that the movie was made by liberals. Keaton himself has a moment where he says something like, yeah, but it's all sound bites, you know, sound bite here from Iraq, sound bite here from the United States. And, and you're watching, you it. realize you work for CNN, buddy. You're, you're watching it. And it's like, yeah, man. It's like, what happened to, what happened to conversation, man? What happened to, to real ideas, man? And when the war breaks out, they like Michael Keaton character is like upset that their reportage, uh, their fine reportage didn't stop the war by get by creating understanding across the cultural divide and it's like yeah 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 you broadcasting like that one story with the guy at the embassy whose like hands were shaking you doing the story about the little british boy who met the president of iraq yeah can you believe that didn't stop the gulf war from happening we're a 24-hour news network looking for a 24-hour story and one just fell from the sky people aren't going to wait till seven o'clock at night to find out whether we're at war or not they're going to tune in to cnn yeah i understand you want baghdad yes i do baghdad's tricky there's the element of finesse here that may not be your strongest suit. Yeah, well, I'm the right man for the job, Ethan, and you know it. All right. I agree with you, Robert. It is a 24-hour story, and the whole world's going to want to see it. ABC and CBS are already in there, so we've got to play catch-up. We've got to own this story. Ted Turner's guaranteed me that we'll have everything we need to do that. There's a great scene where Keaton and the Minister of Information are walking through this square, like having one of their negotiations. And the square, by the way, is full of Muslim people doing rituals of worship, because of course, public displays of religiosity never happen in the United States. Uh, But they're walking through the square, and this is one of the moments where you know this movie was made by liberals, because the Al-Haditha character says, tell me, do you think it's fair that after the first World War, some British general cuts off a piece of my country and calls it Kuwait. And Keaton basically says, huh, you know, that's interesting. But but anyway, listen, we need to. Uh, and then and then towards the end of the conversation, Keaton says something like, look, I may never understand you. You may never understand me, but we need to keep talking to each other. God, these two have some great banter, don't they? There's some there's some great, uh, definitely not at all hack script writing here where. Well, it's like I, I we're not so different. You and I level shit. Right. But where there's that great moment where Al-Haditha says to him, Oh, boy, you sure take liberties, you know, because Michael Keaton, he's being quite insistent, you know, on CNN's demands. They want they want the fancy technology. They want the, the four cable or whatever the thing's called that's going to allow them to broadcast live. And then Michael Keaton replies, well, I'm an American. Liberty is kind of our thing or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but that, that moment also when Keaton, like right after hearing, presumably for the first time about the history of Kuwait, uh, <laughs> says something like, listen, I may, I may never understand you. You may never understand us. It's like, well, you know, it, it is 
is possible you can understand each other. Let's get back to that conversation about like the, the origins of modern day Kuwait, and then maybe we could start from there. I believe Al-Hadithi at one point drops some kernel in that conversation about, you know, this is a war for oil, which is, again, you know, this is a liberal movie because little phrases have to be dropped throughout the movie just as little tokens. Yeah. And then towards the end where there's like footage of, you know, buildings that have been bombed or whatever, there's kind of some implication that like, well, I mean, of course, we all know this is necessary, but we're, we're very sad about it. So anyway, uh, yeah, plenty of scenes in, you know, the hotel at the U.S. Uh, embassy where, you know, the shot will begin with them barbecuing, you know, bacon and uh, very, very interesting bacon and burgers they're having listening to Duran Duran. And then later in the movie, on the eve of the Gulf War, all the CNN guys are at a bar and they're listening to Safety Dance by Men Without Hats. <laughs> and this reminds me of that awful Tetris movie we saw oh, recently, yeah. which, of course, was about the efforts to liberate Tetris from behind the Iron Curtain. <laughs> Communism didn't want people to have Tetris. And there's that scene, yeah. you remember that's the scene where they're all dancing to sort of garbage American pop music? Yeah, yeah. Like, what is it with these movies where the sort of crappiest, most kitschy American pop is positioned as freedom? No, that's what I'm telling you. That's the Tom Friedman brain thing. This is this is the 1990s, like, post- It's never Beethoven, is it? <laughs> no, this is the, like, post-Berlin Wall. This is what the locus of freedom was. It was consumer products. That was the thing that was most exciting about globalization. They might have said, no, it's like every country is going to be a liberal democracy. You know, there's this new thing called the World Wide Web, and it's going to make the truth burst forth like a, a mighty river or whatever. But that was all bullshit. The real project, the real thing that everyone was supposed to be excited about was the fact that there were going to be American consumer goods all over the world, which is the ultimate benchmark for whether you have freedom or not. Like Tom Friedman wrote about this in uh, his book. Uh, I think it was The World is Flat. It could have been any other num number of Tom Friedman books that are the exact same thing. But he had what was called the Dell Theory of Conflict Prevention, okay? A very serious idea that serious people took seriously. And oh, and by the way, this was just an update of a previous theory, an elaboration of another one of his brilliant theories is called the Golden Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention. And, um, you know, I've been reading Tom Friedman for many years. You know, he's been a big influence on me, and I still couldn't tell you what the difference between these two theories are. But the Dell theory stipulates, quote, no two countries that are both part of a major global supply chain like Dell's will ever fight a war against each other as long as they're both part of the same global supply chain. So this is it. The 1990s, freedom comes down to certain consumer goods, which are all traceable back to large American conglomerates. It's the Golden Arches theory. It's the Dell theory. Tom Friedman's certainly a prophet, but uh, this one has been uh, definitively proven wrong by several countries with McDonald's and them uh, going to war, uh, most recently Russia and Ukraine. You know, it occurs to me, uh, and look, we're not going to talk much about the plot of this movie because there really isn't one. Uh, CNN wins, by the way. <laughs> yeah, CNN triumphs over uh, Goliath's NBC and CBS to become the alpha dog of cable news, and we're all very grateful for it. But it occurs to me, uh, the Duran Duran song that we hear a bunch of times is Hungry Like the Wolf, and the thing that they keep saying in relation to the 24-hour news cycle is, gotta feed the beast. A little bit of poetry there. Uh, that's impressive filmmaking. Well, on that note, one of the points of drama in the film is the CNN guys interview, uh, God, what is he? Uh, some some U.S. official in yeah, Iraq. Yeah, he's at the embassy or something. And he ends up getting kidnapped by the Iraqis. Or, and, well, allegedly. Uh, yeah, in the reality of this film, and perhaps perhaps tortured under duress. We don't know. We don't know. That's a heavy implication. And this is one of the moments in the movie where the Michael Keaton character sort of looks at himself and is like, what are we doing? <laughs> here 
you know, like maybe we shouldn't broadcast the news. Right. Like like liberty is good and freedom of information is important, but you know, maybe maybe sometimes we overreach and uh, excessive liberty has consequences. People in positions Folks support yeah. the Patriot Act. Well well exactly. And like you can look at this and it's like, well, it's a good thing the New York Times didn't print all that information about the Iraq war that it had. Because it could have jeopardized, you know, innocent people like that character who Michael Keaton almost gets killed in this movie. Yeah, whereas that report they did on the yellow cake from Niger, that didn't harm anyone. Just another random scene that I liked in the movie. Do you remember that part when they go to Kuwait to be embedded with the Iraq oh, oh, Iraqi military there? They arrive at the airport and they see the Iraqi military all like, they're, they're plundering Kuwaiti goods and like one of them is holding up a boom box and I would not be shocked if there was a Super Nintendo in there and they're all just like <laughs> having a great time like loading these boxes and boxes of goods onto a plane, which again, the Western powers would never do that when they've invaded a country. They would never plunder their goods. Yeah, Western empires have never taken anything from the Middle East, which becomes apparent to you the moment you visit the Louvre or, or, the, or, the, or the British Museum. But no, okay, but this this is in many ways the most important scene in the movie, and this is the most insanely propagandistic thing in the entire movie. The thing that gets them to go to Kuwait is the testimony of one young woman before the United States Congress, one brave young woman from Kuwait who told the truth about Iraq's brutal occupation there and uh, shared the horrific detail on October 10th, 1990, at the age of only 15, that she had witnessed Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of incubators in a Kuwaiti hospital, removed the incubators and leave the babies to die. Uh, that report would go on to be cited uh, throughout the U.S. media, I'm sure by CNN uh, and other networks. Uh, it was cited by various U.S. senators, I'm sure Joe Biden, and also by uh, George H.W. Bush as uh, a big part of uh, building the case for war. So they go to the hospital in response to this story, and they're trying to inter interview a doctor who's sort of saying to them, under duress, you know, surrounded by uh, Iraqi soldiers with Kalashnikovs, you know, no, we didn't witness anything like that here. And then, you know, at a certain point, one of the questions goes too far. He's rustled away and they decide to leave. This incident is never referred to again in the rest of the movie, which again is very labored in its attempt to portray these characters as, you know, skeptical of all forms of power. You know, they don't like getting uh, roughed around by the Iraqi military and they're going to report the U.S. invasion live, so the White House can't control the story. Oh, that's right. And in fact, the White House doesn't even want them there on the night. All the other news networks have left, but they're there because they're so committed to journalism. The White House would prefer they not be there, giving their uh, unfiltered interviews <laughs> and such. Yeah, being like, wow, look at these explosions. They're really big. It's okay. like a firework display. Man, oh man, especially <laughs> in the current context it's, now. It's horrific. It's an interesting contrast between the sort of journalism that CNN was doing at that time and in fact, is still doing now in the sort of citizen journalism that we're just seeing on all of our social media feeds now, where in this movie and also on the actual CNN broadcast, I think one of the reporters described it as like a fireworks show. Mm -hmm. You see all the lights in the sky and it looks like an experimental film and it's very beautiful. And then in one of the movie's final scenes, you know, Keaton and uh, the Minister of Information are like wandering around the ruins. And, you know, you see one body go by in a stretcher, tastefully covered up. But for the most part, it's like bricks and stuff, you know, a lot of dust. And it's a lot different to see that than to see, you know, a constant stream of videos on TikTok and Twitter of just mangled flesh, you know, the actual human cost of the war. Should say there was a journalist, I believe, with CNN who did try to report a story during the Gulf War after the U.S. Uh, hit a facility that they said was a chemical weapons plant or something. This might actually be one of the characters portrayed in the film. I, I can't remember. But he'd been there before and he said, look, 
All I can say is, when I went there recently, they were making penicillin. And let me tell you, he was shut up pretty quickly. But I, I want to come back to this uh, part of the film where they go to Kuwait, because this is really important and speaks to just what a rancid piece of propaganda live in Baghdad really is. The young woman whose testimony I referred to a few moments ago was a 15-year-old who identified herself before the U.S. Congress as Naira. So she had all these claims about babies in incubators uh, or being taken from incubators and that kind of thing. Horrific stuff. In 1992, Two, her last name emerged, and it turned out that she was the daughter of uh, the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. Uh, her testimony was, in fact, organized by something called Citizens for a Free Kuwait, uh, which was a PR campaign quite literally run at the behest of the Kuwaiti government by the American PR firm Hill & Knowlton. Now, this movie came out in 2002, so it came out roughly a decade after the complete falseness of this testimony uh, was known. And the film never uh, acknowledges or addresses that the U.S. media was entirely duped by this, you know, this literal plant by a public relations firm. And instead, it portrays, you know, these these brave CNN reporters going to uh, the, the hospital in Kuwait and being shut up by the repressive, you know, Iraqi occupation forces. I mean, it is completely insane. I don't know what else there is to say about the plot. The war comes. CNN is in a little uh, rickety apartment building uh, with no protection whatsoever. Just, you know, it's not like they were embedded with the U.S. military. No, no, no. They, they were not wanted by the U.S. No, they're, they're literally in the one safe part of Baghdad. It's, man, it's amazing. The scene where a bunch of them go down to the bunker, which is like in the basement of the hotel, and then they're all like listening to like some like U.S. broadcast or something. They go to the bunker and, and all... Michael Keaton knocks on the door <laughs> yeah. and it's opened by, uh, I think, an Iraqi guy with a gun. Yeah holding it in Keaton's face and he's like, please let us in. There are children here. <laughs> yeah. And then they're all like listening to some broadcast or something where somebody says something like this war is in the early stage, but there can be no doubt that the winner of tonight's broadcast was CNN. And then they, and there's, there's cheer. A, they like, cheer. There's a shot of Michael Keaton's face. Somebody says to him like, you did it, boss. You own this war. And Keaton is looking really good. And the, But then because liberals made this movie, they know what they've done. So then the next scene is a shot of the awesome death devastation well, don't forget what michael keaton says after where he's like right after someone says you know you did it boss he's like this 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 was never about me oh yeah yeah could have fooled me <laughs> so then there's a shot of just the awesome devastation afterwards and you know uh, keaton and his friend from the ministry of information have one final chat they agree that after after the war is over one day we will be friends and in fact that guy the, the guy the character is based on was in fact a cia informant who was <laughs> who was given safe passage right before the 2003 Gulf War. <laughs> so he's doing okay now. He's probably living large in Dubai or something. And in fact, at the time this movie was made, I learned from the credits, he was like in foreign minister, foreign minister yeah, of Iraq. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's some text on the screen at the end that says, you know, Robert Weiner went on to do whatever, whatever. But then there's the final, the final text that says Saddam Hussein is still the president of Iraq. And, you know, the implication being not for much longer, he won't be. Guys, something's up. Everybody's saying we gotta get out of here. I'm gonna stay. I'm asking you to go. Tell Chris if you're going live to Baghdad. The skies of Baghdad have been illuminated. There's anti-aircraft fire. Last explosion was in 
We've said many times on this episode that this is obviously the product of liberals, and you can especially tell just by the subject matter of the movie. If this movie were made by Republicans, they wouldn't bother making it about the media. The media is just the buffer. The media is the plausible deniability in this story. Because the media is dispassionate, you know? It just reports on what's there. Republicans would just make a movie about the war, and frankly, I'd rather see that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know this movie came out in 2002, but it really does capture certain things about the 1990s and about, you know, cable news coverage in the 1990s better than almost anything. The obsession with consumer goods, you know, this very Tom Friedman brain kind of stuff. The obsession with technology, like, there honestly is very little about, like, what this war is actually about. It's all about the process of reporting on war. It's about the how. There's a very good uh, old video, which we'll link to, a media review uh, that the British writer Richard Seymour did some years ago, which among other things talks about CNN's coverage of this war and others. And one of the things he points out is that what he calls the CNN effect is characterized principally by two things. One, the network itself, uh, you know, largely because it embedded itself directly in the U.S. military, like the people that they had on, their national security experts and such, were just, you know, state officials in many cases, so much so that they were able to report on the war, like, as it unfolded by the hour, because the U.S. military is basically giving them the fucking blueprint. And then they would report, uh, we're getting reports that such and such a thing is going to happen, and then that would happen, and they'd be like, see, we are proven right, look at how much credibility we have. So CNN makes itself a part of the story. Its coverage becomes part of the the fabric of how people metabolize the war, how American audiences do at least. Uh, And secondly, something uh, Seymour observed is there is breathless coverage of the technicalities of war. So both in terms of the reporting technicalities, which this movie is absolutely obsessed with, you know, the the special cable they're going to use to get a line through to uh, the CNN operations center in Amman that's going to send it, you know, send the report straight through to Atlanta, etc, etc. So there are those kinds of technicalities. There's also military technicalities. So just endless obsession you know, with how certain bombs work and fascination with how oh, the laser guided system, which don't worry, this is really surgical. This isn't going to kill any civilians or, you know, hit any penicillin plants or anything like that. You know, this actually reminds me of something else that's pretty funny from a different movie. But uh, I don't know when the last time you saw Garden State was, but there's a pretty funny conversation in that movie between Zach Braff and the character. I'm forgetting that the character played by Peter Sarsgaard, who, you know, is an old friend of the Zach Braff's character, you know, who's he's Zach Braff's been away for many years. He's coming back to his hometown. He's talking to this friend who still lives with his mother. And the guy's explaining how he collects Iraq War trading cards and how, you know, actually they're a great investment and he's going to live off these one day. What are you doing? You collect Desert Storm trading cards? Fuck yeah. Those things are collector's items, man. You have any idea how much those things are going to be worth one day? Really? Hell yeah. That's just like an investment. I have lots of little investments all over the place. One day I'm going to sell all of them just if I can live off of it. So, like, how much is this one worth? Which? Night vision goggles. I don't know, mint? Uh, two, maybe three. Dollars? Yeah. It's too early, you don't sell them yet. Don't you know anything about investing? I'm going to live off that shit. If you have a complete set, it's worth, like, thousands. So do you have the complete set? Almost. The uh, corners are bent on my friendly fire, and someone stole my wolf blitzer. (laughs) 